0: This is Wayne Jernell, Editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of
1: Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy.
0: You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, so we're recording this moving towards the end of the 2020-2021 academic year, which has been a doozy, as I think everyone's <laughs> experienced. How's the year finishing up for you?
2: Oh, it is, it's, it's really tough. I have a calendar in one hand, trying to figure out like, what am I going to do? Like what needs to be snipped? What I can work into a class? What can I let breathe? Yeah, it's, it's tough. And it's funny. My colleagues were all having very similar conversations, just trying to figure out like, okay, well, so this is a sequential course. And so we have part two and we want to make sure that we're kind of set up for that. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a struggle.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could see you just like kind of at the end of this year, just being like, all right, Students just study the history of calendars, right? And just <laughs> there leaving it go. there, right? It's a good curriculum, right? How we think of time. Yeah, no, I mean, I always remember from, you know, teaching in school, like, especially like US history classes, right? They're like, oh, we only got to Vietnam. The students will now not know anything about the <laughs> 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s as if students retained all the information in their course and the only way they will learn about it is through our courses but that pre- there's a real pressure i think in those chronological like courses it. to feel like you get through certain years right
2: sometimes like there are some things that we want to make sure we're setting up for the next the next year course so like you know making sure we we kind of in our us1 program talk about like immigration like just because we know that that's going to come back pretty quickly yeah. And so there's some things that we do want to make sure that we hit. Not that, you know, everyone's going to remember every single thing, but just so they kind of have like that base layer understanding. Um, right. But I don't know, you know, I don't.
0: I think one thing I've thought about a lot is that, you know, the, I don't, I don't think I love it. I'm just a kind of a contrarian. So maybe if we did it the other way, I would just argue against it too. But I don't, I don't know if I love chronological, approaches to studying history. Right. Cause I mean, at least on, at least just like marching through all of the years, trying to cover oh, the all march of, of the time things. is yeah. R- right. Right. Cause I think like you, when you read a lot of history books and other things, they, it's not that they're trying to cover everything that happens. It's that mm-hmm. they're trying to tell a story about a certain thing. Right. And you get to understand that thing better. So I always really have kind of liked more thematic learning. I think about like when I read this last year, I read, um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi's stamped from the beginning. And then I read the Jason Reynolds young adult version. And I'm like, this is like teaching a history of like white supremacy that I needed to understand. Mm -hmm. And it does go chronologically, but the thematic part of it was the thing that really left me with a meaningful way to apply history to my life. So I, I always struggle with that content coverage issue. And a lot of teachers probably do too.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, we have, yeah, you're right. I really have we we talk about like doing the thematic thing or you know kind of breaking up like what themes we want to cover after the um, after reconstruction but you know it does always seem like we're still kind of dealing with the march of time because our year ends in 1902 or whatever and Right. of course picks up I And know. I think
0: I think the worst case of that ends up becoming like you like history ends up becoming political history right like it's measured by elections right. and that I think can sometimes really lose a lot because then I I think for we too often we start to attribute everything that happens to a president right, right like yeah, yeah. like that's the defining causal factor in history is a this president existed everything that happened is because of them whereas a lot of things are not top down right they're bottom up they're they happen in different ways so we yeah. have
2: also like that's something that we are like trying to get out of doing too um but it's just hard because again we're our courses are i don't know we have a lot of standards that we're also kind of dealing with not that there's a test or anyone's really checking on it, so I don't really know why we're so tied to that. Yeah, if you're
0: the state Massachusetts right? When when the when the standards exist, we feel like that's part of our job is to you know to to cover them to teach them. That's like what we're employed to do. Even if you know, it's like the the standardized tests. Even when they take them away, it's like the, it's still a controlling force a bit. So I'm very I'm very interested in this issue of like. Teacher curriculum gatekeeping and how much you know freedom teachers have to make decisions. We should learn more about that. Let's do it. How? Well, we do have two guests that just happen to be here on this topic. Coincidentally, it's always seems to work out.
2: Wait, is is friend of the pod,
0: Dr. Lauren Harris? Yep. And she brought a friend, Dr. Brian Girard. Welcome.
2: A friend of a friend of the pod. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for for uh, joining us today. Now, just before we get into anything, now, Lauren Harris, do you mind re- refreshing? Who is uh, Dr. Lauren Harris?
3: Sure. Hi, I'm Lauren MacArthur Harris. I'm an associate professor of history education at Arizona State University, and I'm a former ninth grade world history teacher. I taught in Virginia at the time when very detailed standards were introduced in the 19 starting in the 1990s and there was a high stakes assessment and i very much felt what you are talking about michael with having feeling like you have to cover everything in the march through time and so forth the assessment was high stakes for my students and somewhat high stakes for for the teachers as well So from that experience, I became very interested in history curriculum, teaching history, how to prepare history and social studies teachers, and went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, and then arrived at Arizona State University.
0: Can we talk for a moment that there is a course in school called World History, like history of the world, right? It's like, I think I would assume that world history teachers have existential crises about what to teach from all of history in the world, and then have to do studies about it later.
3: Yes, that was very much my experience. It was incredibly overwhelming. And, and I will say that the, the curriculum and the standards were quite Eurocentric, which in some ways limited the amount of content we were expected to teach. But a lot of work I've done has been about more global thematic, connected approaches to world history that bring in more perspectives and so forth, but that also can be challenging with how how do you know what to teach and what to omit.
1: All right, Brian Gerard, now it's all up to you. So Brian Gerard, I'm an associate professor at the College of New Jersey. I started my education career as a junior high school English and social studies teacher. I also taught PE, uh, it was a small school, we, we wore a lot of different hats there. And sort of maybe the opposite actually from from Lauren is that so this was an independent progressive school that I taught at and we didn't, we, we sort of uh, reveled in not having to follow any standards. And I got to um, sort of do what I, I wanted while still trying to maintain coherence and, and um, give students the cultural capital they needed in terms of the US history or what I, I saw that as and when, when thinking about that my background so there's that sort of progressive element and then also maybe it was a formative experience in my own high school uh, but we had also pretty loose rules in my high school regarding this and I remember my U.S. teacher just skipped the Civil War because he didn't like teaching it and I for the rest of my until I got to, to history in, uh, in college I always thought like why that seems kind of important <laughs> why did he skip that so um, I came, I'm coming from the other side where maybe it was a little too loose at times. And, you know, we teachers need a little guidance, maybe in terms of thinking about it. Because there is just
0: so much. Everyone in that class did not understand why people wanted to tear down statues last summer at all. They're like, I'm confused. What did this really happen? Your class skipped it. No, we've heard, we've heard a lot of stories on the podcast about You know, the Civil War being skipped, slavery being skipped by teachers, and that actually causing people to be like, well, I guess I should be a professor of social studies education who makes sure these things are taught.
2: My AP, U.S. history teacher, also skipped the Civil War because he said the chances of us getting that much on the Civil War is going to be nil. So that was one of the decisions he made.
0: Yeah, and and making the decisions in reference to the test, right? Oh, my.
3: Uh, That's one of the reasons that we were interested in this study was the decisions that teachers make in that regard what to what to teach what not to teach and the factors that might lead to those decisions so that was the entry point into the study
0: and so we should before we get too much further in here congratulate you on your publication in theory and mm-hmm. research and social education the article is titled there's no way we can teach all of this Factors that Influence Secondary History Teachers' Content Choices.
1: So yeah, tell us tell us more about what you all did in this study and what you learned. If we can start actually going back, back in time a little bit, because this is, I think, compared to some other work that, well, most people do. Um, I guess it's all, it's usually part of a, a research trajectory. But um, Lauren and I, this goes back to, to a very clear genesis, I would say. In an article actually published together in 2014, where we were looking at teacher thinking in world history. I mean, this actually came out of um, a think aloud task that Lauren actually had done as part of her dissertation. So actually I'll be, I'm gonna stop and let Lauren explain a little bit about that article and, and what came out of it.
3: So this was a bigger dissertation, but there was one question that I asked teachers that were doing this card sort where they were sorting different events in world history. And there was a question I asked, which was out of all these events, there were 25 events. If you were a consultant for the History Channel and they asked you to choose the 10 most significant events, what would you choose? And so I recorded what the teacher said. And then I said, "Okay, well, now what events are the most significant for your classroom? And the teachers changed their answers. So that one question, which was part of a much larger study, Brian and I picked up on that change from most significant in general to most significant for one's classroom. And we really looked at why the teachers talked about that change in those choices.
2: What were some of, some of the differences that they made?
3: Right. So they may, they chose events closer to present for their classrooms. So I had in the study things like the Neolithic Agricultural Revolution and um, the development of writing. Those were chosen quite often for the most significant events in history generally. And then they would choose things closer to present for their classrooms. And they also talked about their students and who their students were. And then they talked about yeah, sort of what they might've learned in previous courses. And so, you know, maybe that was, would make something less important for their course. So we came up with these different areas, teaching considerations, student and community considerations, and then sort of historical significance. And that, that then led to the article we're talking about today, which is we wanted to learn more. It was a small sample of teachers. And so we decided to do a study with more teachers looking at the content choices that they make,
2: is there a way that you can uh, maybe in the show notes, give us the list of the the cut of the topics? Because that is something that I think would be really fun to do. Oh <laughs> sure.
3: Oh the the actual yeah. events that we did with the cards. Absolutely yes. And we uh-huh. can link to the article that was published that has all of those, and also have them separately as well.
2: This could be a fun interactive visions of Ed activity.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. I've actually done it quite a few times with my pre-service teachers. And then we talk about, we do the card sorting activity, and then we talk about the decisions they made and why they made those decisions. And I, I published an article on that actually in The History Teacher a few years ago.
0: The show notes are just turning into a book, bringing all these studies together. So you're going to be able to see them there. I hope they still learned about the development of like the alphabet and agriculture revolution. I actually find those so fascinating, but I think we often teach them in boring ways. But I love to just ask students questions like, who invented the alphabet? And they all just kind of sit there and I'm like, what do you think life was like before it? and they kind of just sit there. And I actually think those are really fun questions because the there's so much distance from those like technological developments that they see them as almost natural, right? Like not as something that was invented at one time. Anyway, sorry. I'm also, by the way, interested in every topic on the list and would probably would probably just put them all even and be like, they're all important.
3: I think uh-huh. some of the teachers felt that way. It was hard for the Yeah, it was certainly hard for them to choose in some cases.
1: And it, it was also interesting just as a side note that there were some things that didn't change you know, that remained in the top 10 in both cases like the Columbian Exchange. So it's interesting that you know what moved and what didn't and of course what we were interested in in their explanations and, and it always came back or almost in every case came back to the students and how they were thinking about what the students needed or you know, it, it, there was a recency bias sort of because it seemed more um, significant for them understanding the current world in a way. Even though, right, yeah, without... Uh, alphabets, none of this would be here. So. so for sure.
0: And it's a good time to be thinking about curriculum across the country right now. We have state legislatures getting involved in curriculum, except usually they're telling you what to teach right now. A lot of the state legislatures are saying not to teach critical race theory, which I haven't heard someone who advocating against it, explain it correctly, and then not teach the 1619 project also almost always misexplained and not understood And so there's a lot of politics that always goes into it. Of course, I would I would say this recent wave is a bit more oppressive and and fascist feeling than some others. But so what did what did regular classroom teachers that you did in in this new study? You know, what did you all find this time?
1: Well, so we we did it sort of in two stages. We both did a, a survey. Um, with about 260 teachers and then we interviewed a, a subsample of that group to try to get a sense and we really had two main goals we had lots of goals but the two main goals for this article were both to understand um, you know so we knew that they teachers were thinking about their content um, in relation to their students and that was shaping it we also had ideas about what else might be influencing it like state standards district pacing guides uh, teachers personal expertise and passions, right? There's a lot that goes into the stew of making those decisions. So we we wanted to do a, both a survey to reach as many teachers as possible, but then have interviews to sort of unpack people's ideas. And one of the things we were really worried or not worried about, but interested in was to what extent are standards um, something that teachers are relying on? And, you know, I think there's a sense among teachers that, that standards are just these oppressive doc, top-down documents um, that, constrain us uh, rather than, than something that sort of gives us guidance. And certainly I feel like my students and former students seem to talk about it that way. So one of the things we were looking at the survey was asking, what are you relying on um, to, to make these decisions if you're looking at resources? And uh, we were surprised that uh, the extent to which t- teachers said they're relying on the standards at least a little bit and um, about 55% said, um, you know, a great deal or more so it standards are actually more in the thinking process than we expected in a way because you might tell your supervisor that but but anonymously you know if you don't have to report it um, we hope it, of course teachers are being honest about it so we found that 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 the standards were definitely um, an important part and then another part of that survey thing was that it, the survey thing. The survey was we gave them two tasks where we gave them uh, sort of modified standards that were actually from uh, Michigan standards, but that had within them choices teachers would have to make. So one was from world history and was asking about sort of the age of revolutions. And they had to, they were given a list of revolutions. And we said, you can only pick three. Why would you, which would you pick and why? And then for U.S. history, it was a standard about the civil war. And it was a standard about picking a, Either a contemporary or other Civil War besides the United States Civil War and making a comparison. And we said, why would you, how would you go about picking? um, What factors would you use to select the other Civil War? So we had these lists of factors and asked them to rank them. And what we found was that um, they were consistent across the topic. So whether you were teaching world or US, they were nearly identical. And in both cases, actually, historical significance still ranked highest. History content was uh, at the forefront of their thinking, but then also right up at the top were relevance for students and interest for students. So we also knew that, that uh, students, as we expected, sort of were, were really important in, in their thinking. I would I would just settle
0: for people understanding what the word revolution means because it's so overused, right? I'm like, that the thing you said is not a revolution, right? That was not a computer revolution. It was not. That's the wrong way to use the term. So that's it. That's as long as they're comparing, if they can get the definition right, that's a good starting point.
3: Brian and I always like the revolution question, because it lists a number of revolutions, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, Latin American Revolutions. And teachers often say the American Revolution, but then what are the other two that they would compare? And to see what either makes it good comparison in the in the case of world history thinking about what other revolution would be a good comparison but also it often has to do with the students that they're teaching and so teachers will bring in you know students they have they teach a particular population of students that they feel you know a particular revolution might be more relevant and so forth so it's an interesting question that is in standards and standards have a variety of ways that they present choice to teachers. So Brian and I actually also did a study, a related study about the amount of choice in the history standards in the United States. So we looked at 50 state standards in the District of Columbia and found a huge variety in how standards articulate choice to teachers. And so some have a a great deal of choice and some have almost limitless choice, Uh, they're so vague. And then some, have less choice, but there's very few state standards that actually have no choice in them. So there is quite a bit of, you know, gatekeeping, as was said at at the beginning, that goes on. A lot of teachers have to make decisions, even with standards that can seem quite restrictive. There are still areas where they decide, for example, how long to spend on a certain time period or what people to bring in if people aren't necessarily mentioned in standards. So there is definitely a lot of opportunities for teachers to make decisions. And it's very interesting to look at the kinds of decisions that they make.
0: I think one challenge in, in the U.S., you know, with our, our federal system of government where we've left education largely under the control of the states, is that every state has, has you know their own sets of standards. And that makes it really hard to study this stuff, right? Because the standards can look so different. I mean, I just did a recent um, study where we looked at Ohio, Oregon, and Texas. I mean, in Texas, standards are just, its inc- it's amazing how the messy political, like, like it just was so much longer than the other ones. The other one, the other two states were a lot simpler. And so I could see how teachers could say, oh, I could take the standard and go in a lot of different directions. And you kind of have to. Whereas then the Texas standards had these like long detailed standards that listed groups of people. It seems like politicians fought over that have like nothing to do with each other. And so now you're like creating like these strange hodgepodge lessons. So it's a real challenge to think in the U.S. like how we define what social studies and history education looks like. When the standards can look so different, so how did how did the standards that that you all kind of had to think about or talked about in your paper? Like, did you particularly? I mean, did you talk about specific standards that that were s- simpler, or were they more complex and and more constraining for teachers?
1: We saw all kinds, and it's what you're talking about there, Dan. You know, I once had a student say when we were. Talking about standards, he said it's like dehydrated milk. You have to put you have to put the meaning back into it, right? You have just these lists of things, and then you, as the teacher, have to be like, okay, how do, how do these strange pieces fit together in a way that's coherent? And that goes back to um, other things we've talked about in terms of how do you how do you build this narrative for students in a way that makes sense and make, makes sense for you as a teacher too? Because if you're not coherent, right, the, it's not going to be coherent for the students. So. I, to me, that in that standard study, the most interesting thing was even in the places that felt very restrictive. Um, I'm not a I'm not a linguist, but the the you could find and sort of um, in the language the slippage or the the places where like oh even though this is trying to be very controlling, it's actually leaving room. So you might say uh, one that springs to mind um, was about Abraham Lincoln and his writing, and then it it proceeded without saying you get to choose. It proceeded to just say like you know, teach some of his stuff. And then it listed like 30 possible things, Gettysburg Address, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, unless you're just gonna teach an elective on, on Lincoln, right? You're gonna have to make choices among all those things they list. Like it's not possible again to do it all. So, so that notion it just sort of turned it on its head for me a little bit of putting teachers in a, in a place of agency when approaching the standards because you, you can't do it all.
2: What if I wanna teach it all? we recently went back through the new state standards in Massachusetts and we started to make edits in our curriculum map and it was tough. And I felt like some things that I love, I had to say goodbye to, which was for the, like, it was, it gave us more space to do things. So I totally understand, but my goodness, I did lose some things, which again, I'm fine. It was for the collective good, I guess. And it probably made us, it gave us more time to do other things.
1: Well, I, this, our study doesn't answer these questions, but I think the other thing that it raises, because in the paper, I think in talking to the teachers, there's lots of good examples of when a teacher makes a particular choice, right? It might be uh, because of their students. So there's a teacher who says, you know, I have a lot of Dominican students. So when we're talking about dictatorships, I use Trujillo as an example, because I know my students know something at least about that, right? That they've got some kernel at least to build upon. And that's a great thing to do, I think, but that particular example isn't necessarily the best example for some other set of students, right? So, so we're also in this notion of helping teachers make these decisions. Do you do the standards? Do we as a profession find ways to allow for, I, well, Mike, I can't give you everything, right? But to allow for the difference between, Michael, what you would want to choose and what you had to lose and what someone else... While, while also not letting a teacher just skip the Civil War and slavery, right? So what's the what's the happy medium, if, there, if that exists, in such a politically contentious time, with such politically contentious documents? But I do think that, that our work here kind of shows the real value of giving teachers professional courtesy to sort of make those decisions, because you can't know it all, you can't teach it all. So why not rely on their expertise in particular areas, their passion. We know passion matters for student engagement. And then also those considerations around the particular students in front of you and what they're interested in and um, what matters. I
0: sometimes am a very selfish teacher in that I do teach the things I'm excited about. You know what I mean? I do emphasize those and it does vary year to year. Like I don't teach the same things every year because I love learning and I get into something like the Haitian revolution and wanting to understand it. And then I hope my students like it too. But I think, I, I do think that most students, and, and you hear this over and over when I ask, I always ask my teacher candidates in our class, who, who are the best teachers in your, think of the best teachers in your in your K-12 career and what made them good teachers to you? And enthusiasm is always on the list, like people who are excited about what they were doing. And so I always hope that that, that cuts it for me when I make my curriculum decisions and choose things that I'm really excited about that they will they will feel that enthusiasm and interest in understanding the past as a means to to you know consider understand our world and make a better world today.
3: And that's one of the things we looked at as well was teacher passion and teacher expertise as factors that influence choices and I don't think it should be discounted. I think it's incredibly important that if a teacher has a particular, depth of knowledge in in particular area or time period and also has is incredibly enthusiastic and excited about it that can be something that the students really pick up on so I think it's very very important to that that is weighed against other factors as well and yeah these are difficult questions what if you do want to teach it all and it, it is a balancing act and I think I think there's a lot more work that could be done in some of these documents like standards or curriculum to allow for some of these things and including current events that might be happening while someone is teaching and that cannot be captured in any kind of standards document. But how could standards documents or curriculum allow for uh, teachers to take up something that is happening while the course is going on? and make connections perhaps to other historical time periods.
2: I just have a quick question. So I have really great jokes for the English civil war, like really good. Like, is that a good reason to keep the English civil war in my, in my world history class or should I just let it die?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if the dad in me says keep the good jokes, but, uh, but probably not. Um, But that does, that does raise the question too about those, this, this is one of the, the things I guess we hope to find, but didn't, and I'm curious if you got what you guys think about this is, one of the questions we asked in the interviews was to ask students, or students teachers about a favorite unit they had. And part of what we were, I guess I have this inkling that like your favorite jokes, Michael, We we tend to develop these favorite units that really, well, I, it could be because of our interests, but also I think oftentimes they just work for our students, right? There's just something like, oh, when we get to that, when we get to the to the um, model UN unit, it just, the students get so invested and it's just such an energetic time. And there's, there's something there, right? There's something about when you get to a particular unit, and it's usually not just, I don't think, just the content, but then there's some sort of pedagogical, device you're using that just it's like peanut butter and jelly or chocolate and peanut butter that just goes so well together um, and I wanted I, w- I was hoping in, in getting teachers to think about these decisions that they would give us more examples of where that was happening where it just it just sings sort of when those things go together and I was a little surprised again we didn't wasn't a ton of teachers but we didn't get really great examples of that my favorite unit and and we could take something away um, like that. So um, that's another area that, like in the future, we want to explore is even once you've selected the content and the things you really love, how are you marrying it with particular pedagogical approaches that make a really compelling unit? Um, anyway, so that's one of the one of my sadnesses, I guess, is that we didn't didn't get as much on that. I I
0: really like the word you use there, compelling. Because I've really liked writing compelling questions since, since the kind of C3 inquiry framework came up, because I always think of compelling questions as, as bringing life into the curriculum because they should be debatable, but also they should be of interest to both students and society. And one thing that I think we're really bad at in in social studies education because of the way standards are structured and they go through these long, like legislative committee processes that take a long time is the curriculum is not responsive, right? I think there was a real benefit this last year to understanding. Um, racial violence or police violence as a topic that we need to understand the history of this to better understand how we grapple with it today. I've seen very little efforts to include ecological or environmental history, even though the climate change is probably going to be another one of the defining issues that in all our students' lives as they continue to grow up. And so it just seems like there is something to that, that, that we often teach, you know, that, that history that, that, we learned, right? Of course, you have to learn all the things that I learned, and they all because they all are important. And but I also wonder if the purpose is not just to help students like grow as historians, but to also help them grow as citizens who make change in the world. They need to have a deeper, longer understanding of some of those most impactful issues. And that's hard to do because it's just the system's really not set up for that. So I guess saying all that, what advice do you have? For classroom teachers, for researchers who are continuing to explore this curriculum, you know, decision making process that teachers make.
3: I think one, one thing is for teachers, uh, pre-service teachers, for example, and this, and this is where teacher educators can come in, is to really understand what, for example, so we're talking about standards, what the standards are asking of you, but also what, what choices you have and where you can for example, connect to your local community and so forth, or bring in current events. So to, to have more of a sense of the choices that are there in the standards, there's even, there's, there are language, ways that standards documents use language that show choice. So there's standards that use, for example, EG or IE, and EG means it's maybe ass- it's going to be assessed on the tape State assessment. And our IE means it is going to be tested and EG means it's not. And that's, that's a, a subtle sort of difference that actually can make a huge difference in a teacher who a teacher who is in a state where there are state exams.
0: And we in Texas, it's it's including and such as is the difference in the language that they use.
3: That's right. And we found and and ors that do that. And so I think even just uh, at the base level is sort of understanding that the standards document first of all if it's not tied to the state assessment as Michael said earlier you know how, how much can you use it as just a guide how much can how much can you go away from it and bringing your own things so I think that's one thing I think it's it's also really thinking about these different factors and why one might make a decision. So being maybe a little bit more purposeful in thinking about, okay, I'm making a decision to, to not spend as much time on the American revolution in my world history course, because they were in us history last year and spent more time in the American revolution. So I can just pick up on what was done last year and then make that decision to spend more time on other revolutions or I, I want to get to know my students at the beginning of the year, I'm going to allow them to have some choice in some, I'm going to, you know, set up my curriculum for the year so that the students have some choice in some things they might want to learn more about. So I think it's, it's looking at the different factors any given teacher might have for making their choices. And then thinking about, okay, well, how can I bring those things together my own interest, my students, can I bring the community in? And then you know, do is there are there things that are, are mandated that I must teach as well?
1: I would just add to that part of it too. I think requires and this ties both what you were asking Dan, but also then back to that notion of current events. That I think part of what makes the profession exciting is right that you 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 have the opportunity to be continually learning. You also um, it shouldn't be static because things are changing. So we said you know the, the number one thing teachers pointed to was historical significance but historical significance in and of itself is not a static thing, right? It is, it's its is—it's—it's something that shifts over time as current events, as life happens, right? So I think about, you know, the, I was teaching during 9-11 and all of a sudden the history of the West and Islam became a lot more important for my students to understand than it had before then. Now, should they have known about it before? Probably, but again, the problem we're dealing with is there's too much. I, about when i i tried to teach about the robber barons you know in 2001 and i was kind of bored with it i think today it's much easier to think about power accumulated in the hands of a few and the outsized influence they have on our lives yes. with technology today right so like all of a sudden that the, the lessons of, of uh, the turn of the century there become way more relevant so so that with that example right there that stuff is probably in the standards somewhere but for for a lot of years, teachers that maybe, unless they have a particular passion, that's not something they're necessarily digging into deep. But maybe re- revisit and say, "Hey, maybe I need to think about this unit a little bit differently in light of current circumstances." So just that notion of staying alive to the world and how is that going to recursively reshape uh, what you're doing and the decisions you make, and it, even if it means you have to throw out some some old jokes or your that that favorite um, you know file on that particular unit. Um, <laughs> It, I think in the end, the enthusiasm and the excitement and the learning uh, benefits.
0: And and let's not sleep on the therape- therapeutic value of getting to do a lesson where you critique Zuckerberg, Bezos, and Musk, and all the stuff they're doing in this world. I feel like I could I could uh, get a lot out of my system by designing that unit too. So <laughs> so I like the robber the robber barons connection, but I love that that you're I think you're. I love the point that there's a lot, there's always a lot more we can read into the standards. And we think of themes, connections to the present and other things, there's the curriculum really can be expansive and we need teachers to think creatively about it. I mean, Michael, the next time I teach you history, I might just do it from, let's just say, for example, Frederick Douglass's perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. Did you read a book that uh, might uh, help you with that?
0: (laughs) Ongoing joke on your joke. Well, thank you two so much for for joining us and talking about your study and helping us think through
1: such an important issue. Thank you for having us. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's a real uh, great resource for the social studies community.
3: Thank you so much. And I also want to point out that this, the article that we've been talking about in uh, TRSE was Team Effort. So we were joined by uh, Linda Maker from the College of New Jersey, Taylor Kestner at Arizona State, and Stephanie Reed from the University of Montana, who brought lots of expertise as well. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. And all of them are linked in the article, which is hyperlinked in the show notes, and you can find that and, and read that. So um, thank you so much. And where can our listeners find you and your work online?
3: So I can be found if you search Lauren Harris at Arizona State University. I have a university page with all my publications and so forth. I'm also on ResearchGate and academia.edu. Likewise, I'm on
1: ResearchGate and uh, Brian Gerard, the College of New Jersey, or even just TCNJ. uh, You'll find my personal page.
0: Yep, just get in there, get on DuckDuckGo and do that search. We will make sure to link those places also in the show notes so they can find them there. So thanks again for joining us, and we will definitely continue these discussions online and in other spaces.
2: Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat and figure out what are the uh, top 10 historical documentaries that should be created, uh, hit us up. We're on Visions of Ed on Twitter. We're also on Facebook sometimes and in that place that I forget the password that I signed up for. And again, if you haven't already, and why haven't you, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be.
0: And I know you're feeling a lot of curricular freedom right now after this discussion, thinking you can do whatever you want, but we're going to give you strict orders here. Please give us a five-star review. Uh, All the other stars are invalid curriculum that should be outlawed (laughs) we would also like to thank zach seitz of wiley high school and the university of north texas for his editing skills thanks zach you can find me on twitter i'm at dan kretka and i'm at
2: 42 think deep
0: until next time this is the visions of education podcast
2: signing off